Folks, the scriptures this weekend are about fraternal correction. The first reading speaks about it. The responsorial psalm speaks about not hardening our hearts. The, the second reading speaks about loving one's neighbor and the commandments that, um, that prevent that from taking place. The gospel speaks about how to correct one's brother. I want to, I want to mention a couple things before I go into fraternal correction. And it's the assumption that these readings may, uh, make. In order for us to correct one another, one must first have a desire for heaven. One must first have a desire for God. One must first desire to, to know God, to love Him, to serve Him with one's whole heart, one's whole mind, one's whole soul, one's whole strength. And one must have this love for one's neighbor. There, that, that's, that's assumed. If one does not have those two things, or one's not living out those uh, two commandments in one's life, to love God above all things and one neighbor as oneself, fraternal correction always goes wrong. It just always goes wrong. But even if one is living those, those two commandments, loving God above all things and loving one's neighbor as oneself, it still can go wrong. But there's, a, there's something I want to mention about, which our first reading speaks of, so God comes to the prophet Ezekiel and he tells him, I appointed you watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear me say anything, you shall warn them for me. If I tell the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade the wicked from his way. The wicked shall die for his guilt. But I will hold you responsible for his death. Because Ezekiel hasn't corrected the man. However, God continues, but if you warn the wicked, trying to turn him from his way, and he refuses to turn from his way, he shall die for his guilt, but you shall save yourself. One's not held accountable because one has done one's part. We are called to, of course, correct the wicked, but the wicked, they're the, they themselves have to be the ones who repent. We can't repent for others. Just like we can't go to confession for someone else. We come to confession for our own sins, for our own uh, for the wrongs that we have done. In preparing for this homily, the word wicked stood out to me. And it stood out for me because I was, I was like, what, what does the word wicked mean? Like, what does it actually mean? When somebody, you know, goes off and goes on a rampage and kills somebody, we all just say, well, that guy's a wicked man. But I was thinking, well, but it's got to be broader than that. It's got to be more than just that. So then, as I got to the second reading, and I was reading the second reading, St. Paul speaks about how we're supposed to love our neighbor, and that love does no evil to one's neighbor. And then he mentions these things, which does evil to one's neighbor. Namely, adultery, killing somebody, stealing, coveting. And then he says there's other commandments as well. So the one who commits adultery is wicked. The one who commits adultery is wicked. This is assuming that the person has not repented. There are many people who have repented, and then of course they're no longer wicked. The one who has killed, the person's wicked. In reading this, I immediately thought of our own country, how in our own country, our own state, there are 20 to 30 people killed every week. 20 to, people, 20 to 30 people killed every week here in North Dakota. Having done nothing wrong, just the fact that they exist. 
Of course, I'm talking about the Red River Women's Clinic there in Fargo, the abortion clinic. But our whole country, our whole country, we have legalized killing somebody, not just at the beginning of life, but also we have legalized the death penalty. There's absolutely no reason for the death penalty in our country anymore. I would say that there probably are some in some countries, as the church has taught for many years, that if somebody is not able, if somebody who's done wrong, someone who's wicked, is hurting society and society can't pre, uh, prevent that person from hurting society, well then one can take that person's life to protect society. But in our country, there's absolutely no reason we can put a person in jail for life. Politicians who promote abortion or who promote the death penalty. I'm not judging their hearts, but according to what, what um, St. Paul says, what Jesus says, you shall not kill. We're called to hold those people accountable. We're called to call them out. Stealing, you shall not steal. I don't know who, who has stolen here. I'm guessing many of us. I, can, I myself can say I've stolen something. You know, especially growing up in a family of 10 kids and you want things and sometimes you just take it. <laughs> there's little stuff and there's big stuff. The bigger the thing, of course, the greater the sin. But someone who steals unrepentant is wicked. You shall not covet. Here, desiring something that, that is not yours Desiring something that doesn't belong to you. It's the beginning of adultery and it's the beginning of stealing. It's why the seventh commandment and the sixth commandment usually go with the, the ninth and tenth commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. They go together. Nobody steals something unless they are first coveted it. Nobody commits adultery unless they are first coveting the other person. The person who is allowing that to grow within one's heart, that desire of coveting is wicked, unless one repents. Now to our Gospel reading. The Gospel reading, the context is Jesus speaking to his disciples. So th this is about big stuff. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So something big. You know, I just point out this big fault to everyone. You're going to him alone. Just you and him. If he listens to you, you have one over your brother. One of the commentaries that I was reading said that uh, the, the Greek word that tells, that says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The assumption is that you're not just pointing out the fault, but you're coming with this, this gentleness, this respect for the other. If he listens to you, you have one over your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Take a couple of others or another person along with you. And then you address the person again. What you're doing is wrong. And if, and if that person still does not listen, Jesus continues and he says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a gentle Gentile or tax collector. This third step, I only know about it in a few cases, 
Today it's mostly uh, about clergy. When clergy have done something wrong, a deacon, priest, or bishop, then they're held accountable and the church makes a declarative sentence uh, upon the person. I think of Theodore McCarrick, you know, a former, um, a former cardinal uh, of the church, a man of great influence within our own country, how because of what he did, he was completely, um, had his faculties removed and completely removed as a cardinal. The first time that I know of that's ever happened in the church. But it also happens to lay people from time to time. Not so much in our age, though every now and then I hear about some situations where a bishop will excommunicate somebody. Uh, the leader is not doing what, what he's supposed to be doing or is doing something that's clearly against morality, against the church. If, if it was up to me, I think there should be a lot more excommunications going on. You know, where Catholics, Catholics claim to be living you know, the Catholic life and, and are for abortion, are for the death penalty within our country, are for all these immoral things. And, and we all know that as Catholic Christians, we ought to be living our lives and preaching or teaching what, how we're supposed to live. We can't say, well, I personally believe in the Catholic Church, but my public life can say otherwise. We can't, we can't be like that. That's called duplicity. Two-mindedness. And then, and then Jesus continues. He says, Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Where he gives to the church the authority, he gives to these disciples the authority to bind and to loose. The only other place that the word church appears in Matthew's gospel is in the context of this same binding and loosing when we heard this gospel reading two Sundays ago, where Jesus calls Simon rock, and it's upon this rock that, that Jesus builds the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Here in this context, Jesus is giving the authority to the other apostles as well, and to all the, the bishops that follow. And then he continues, and he sort of gives a, a, the, something to help us bring peoples together to help us to point out to someone their, their fault with great love and with courage. He says, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything for which they are to pray, it shall be granted to them by my Heavenly Father. How many of us pray for our politicians? How many of us pray for those who are committing bad deeds? How many of us do that? How many of us pray for our governor here in North Dakota, our mayor here in Kildare. How many of us pray, pray for these men? We're to pray for them often because they have great roles, they have great leadership. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Where two or three gather together in Jesus' name, there Jesus is. We gather together as a church because Jesus commands us to do so. Because when we gather, we have this greater love for one another. We have this greater respect. We help one another. We build each other up. When, when a church falls apart and everybody goes their separate ways, pretty soon you're going to have multiple different interpretations of the scriptures. You're going to have multiple interpretations of how we are to live the moral life. And 
the less one goes to Mass, the less one gives one's life to Jesus, the less one puts God first, the less one lives the moral life. So we are to pray together. As a church, yes, but it begins in the home. Married couples, if you're not praying together, you need to start praying together. That's a must. How many of you want Jesus in your midst? I, I know the answer for all of you is yes, you all want Jesus in your midst. But if one's not praying together, as a married couple, that's preventing from Jesus, that's present, preventing Jesus from being in your home by not praying together. But also praying with your children. Parents, you, you, you need to pray with your children too. Children don't learn how to pray unless parents are teaching them. I could have, you know, all kinds of sessions of how to pray, and, but, but children always hear it from their parents more so than they hear it from anybody else, a catechist or, or even the priest. So parents, pray with your kids if you're not already. Teach your kids how to pray. And of course, pray for those who sin against you. Pray for them. Folks at this Mass, let's pray for the grace that, that we may correct others appropriately with great love, but also that, that we ourselves may take the plank out of our own eyes before we try to move the splinter out of our brother's eyes. Let's pray for these graces.